Julie and I couldn't help it. We recorded most of the services related to George H.W. Bush's service, uh, services, his funeral, because it was just such a significant time. We remember his presidency well, although I remember Dana Carvey's act a little better, um, because he actually did President Bush better than President Bush did, I think. But um, it was fascinating to uh, listen to the descriptions of this president, and, and at times you thought you got learned more about the describer than you did the one who's described, because, because what uh, that particular commentator described oftentimes revealed what mattered th them. Uh, and sometimes you almost got the sense, I'm learning more about you than I am President Bush. That's really true a lot of the time. The, the fact is that all of us see life through our own filters. And because we see life through those filters, uh, that, that affects what we think to believe is true. Um, uh, let me give you another example. I, I've been fascinated listening to people on TV and radio tell us what the real meaning of Christmas is. Depending on who's speaking, it can be for good food. After all, the real meaning of Christmas is sitting and eating, really. Or being with family, or giving gifts, or saluting the American flag. It's astounding, all the things that come up when you listen to people describe the real meaning of Christmas. And in each case, you believe, I've learned more about you than I have about Christmas. The fact of the matter is, the reality is that all of us filter what we see. And all of us have a tendency, if we're not checked, to uphold, to defend, to embrace the truth that we desire. The postmodern revolution got a lot of attention for recreating truth, personalizing truth, removing the idea of absolute truth. I personally think what they did is they got academic approval for what the human heart has always done. Because the reality of it is all of us tend to pick the evidence we want to come to the conclusions we desire, and oftentimes what we describe to be true says more about us than it does about what really happened. And, and that's why we make choices. We make choices on the, oftentimes more on the things that we want to be true rather than what is true. It's, it's, it's fine on some things. The problem is when we do that related to things that matter significantly. We're going to begin the study of the book of Luke. We're going to do it very quickly. We're not going to do the whole book. Today, we're going to look at chapter 1, which is 80 verses. I don't have time to go through all 80 verses. So I just, we're going to scan some of the material of the book of Luke because it is such a phenomenal description of the life of Jesus. But it's particularly important because Luke, more than any gospel writer, goes out of his way to make sure that we understand that he is telling us the truth. Look, if you will, at Luke chapter 1. We don't know a lot about Luke. We believe he was a physician. We know he accompanied the Apostle Paul on missionary journeys. Uh, we're not sure if he's Gentile or Jew. We believe that he was deeply impacted in a relationship with John Mark. Um, but this gospel, which is paired with the book of Acts, both were written to the same person, is, is the most intentional historical description 
of the events beginning before the birth of Christ through the life of Paul. It is, it is a historian's perspective of who Jesus is. If you look at, with me at verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. I don't think that's just referring to the other gospel writers. There's a huge debate over which gospel was first and other issues, but I don't think that's his point. Remember, this was a time before the printing press. There would have been all kinds of versions about Jesus that would have been circulating in the first century. There would have been all kinds of uh, information that would have been available. So Luke says, there have been many who have tried, um, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the, uh, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty, the truth of the things you have been taught. Notice the order here. Luke says, I personally researched to find the truth. Uh, there's a, it's most likely that Luke was not an eyewitness of the events of the, that are described in the gospel. But as an intelligent professional man at his time, he wasn't just going to embrace the story of a Messiah uncritically. So what he says is, I did thorough research. I made the decision that I would go and find out. I would meet with eyewitnesses. I would listen to their story. I would check the veracity of the different opinions. I would do everything that I could to make sure that I knew the truth. And then he says, and so it made sense to write you, Theophilus, and let you know what I found out. Now, because it's part of the New Testament canon, we believe that this book is spirit-inspired, that it has truth in that element, but that doesn't erase the reality of the human intention of this man to find out exactly what was true in these events. Because when it's life and death, it doesn't matter what I feel is true. When it's life and death, it doesn't matter what I want to be true. When it's life and death, the only thing that matters is what's really true, right? Uh, we live in a world where people shape their own truth. They make up their stuff. You hear it all the time. You, you, like I said, you could sort of hear it in the services from President Bush. One commentator would say, well, I always think he was kind of like this. And you're thinking, really? That's interesting. But when things really matter, we have to seek the truth. Because if you're going to a physician and looking for treatment for a terminal disease, you want to know the truth. If, if you're flying in a plane, you want a pilot who knows the truth about flying, not one who feels good about flying, right? I feel like if I do this, it should go up. The, the, the fact of the matter is, regardless of what we seek to do with the truth, experience teaches that the truth matters. And Luke is saying to Theophilus, who reads this first, as well as all of us who read it, I want you to know that this is the truth. Notice the emphasis on eyewitnesses. That is, that is an emphasis throughout Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul makes the point of saying, hundreds of people saw the resurrected Christ. 
Hundreds of people saw the resurrected Christ. Implication being, check it out yourself. In fact, one of the things that struck me as I've read this chapter multiple times this week is the simple question, what else could Luke have done to show us that this birth is special? What else could he have done? As we go through this, we'll see that there are angels. We see that there are supernatural events. We see there are eyewitness accounts. What else could possibly be done in this first chapter to prove the truth of what he's telling? And yet we often struggle with believing. Beginning with verse 5, the attention turns to the priest and the prophet. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Zechariah means Yahweh has remembered again. And this priest belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, and both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. He has just said a mouthful. First, Zechariah was one of the divisions of the priesthood. At this time, depending on what source you read, there were between 18 and 20,000 priests in Israel. Between 18 and 20,000 priests. And they were divided into orders and divisions, and, and therefore that is the way that they apportioned out the responsibility of the priestly service. So uh, a priest would typically serve during the great feast when all of Israel was expected to come and then have two other weeks a year when he came to serve in the temple. That, that would have been his responsibility. And it says Zechariah had a wife named Elizabeth and they were getting old. But then he says something else about them. In essence, he says they were exemplary people. They were exemplary people. They, they were obedient to Scripture and committed to following God. But Elizabeth was barren, and they were unable to have children. Can I tell you that in, in 25 years now or 26 years of being a pastor, one of the things that, that I didn't understand until I was a pastor is very few, few people experience the same kind of pain as women who can't have children. It, it, is, it is one of the most devastating lives for some women I've ever met. And, and, and I say that out of deep, deep respect because it is, it's, for so many women, it's, it's a crushing of dreams. And even though today in our society women have all kinds of other opportunities, especially for Christian women, it's oftentimes something that's crushing. And I've met very few that didn't go through an incredible struggle in their relationship with God for it. Because it's something they pray deeply about. And yet God had said no. I want you to notice something about Elizabeth and Zechariah. Uh, Luke says they weren't able to have children. But they were faithful in their love and obedience of God. Sometimes we present the, our faith as if you do this so that you can get what you want. But the reality is most of us, the followers of Christ, have experienced something in our lives, whether it's an ability to have children, an opportunity to be married, or a failed marriage, or something else in our lives. Most of us have experienced some kind of crisis that we had to work through with God. 
And, and most of us have experienced what that is to have to hold on with that white-knuckle grip to God when every part of us wanted to let go and move on. What you see in Elizabeth and Zechariah, but especially, honestly, in Elizabeth, is a woman who had suffered what could be a crushing disappointment, but had made the choice to love God well. She had made the choice, according to Luke, to love God well. In fact, as we read this chapter, you'll notice the women come out much better than men. But why should this chapter be different from the rest of life? Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God, and he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of the burning came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. In the temple, there was this, the large court of the Gentiles, the large court that was available to all the worshipers, but then there was this inner chamber, which was the holy place, and in the holy place was the, uh, the table of showbread, the candlesticks, and the table of incense, where incense was burned. And the incense had to be kept restored by the priest so that it would continually burn. The incense represented the prayers of the people going up to God. And according to what we know of Scripture from this passage as well as rabbinic literature, a priest had one opportunity to do what Zechariah does here in his whole career. In his whole career, one time he would have given, been given the chance by lot in his two weeks of service during the week to go into the holy place and serve the Lord by restoring that incense, making sure it was clean and burning well, and in doing that, praying on behalf of the people because a priest is a mediator between the people and God. The book of Hebrews says we have one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But prior to the coming of Christ, it was through the priesthood that the people were prayed for. And so Zechariah had this once-in-a-lifetime experience of going into the holy place. By this time, the Holy of Holies no longer had the uh, Ark of the Covenant. It had been lost in the captivity, as near as we can tell. But he goes into this holy place, and he, he prays on the behalf of the people while he serves, taking care of the ashes and the incense. And notice what happens. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John, which, by the way, means Yahweh has been gracious. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be lifted, excuse me, filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And many of the people of Israel will bring, he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers and the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Zechariah is serving, and an angel appears like you do. 
He's startled. And the angel identifies himself as Gabriel. Gabriel is identified by name in the book of Daniel in speaking of prophetic word of what God will do in the future. And Gabriel says to Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. wonder what those prayers were. One has to suspect that at least one thing that was a part of his personal prayer life, or at least had been in the past, that they had prayed for a child. Most scholars believe, however, that by this time, because of his age, he probably was no longer praying that prayer. But as a priest representing the people, what he would have been praying would be that God would come and, and intervene in the nation of Israel, that he would restore Israel to her greatness. He would restore the strength of her relationships within the nation, that he would bring about a revival, using our language, to restore the people to God. And the angel says, God heard your prayer. And God said, yes. And he's going to give you a son. And Zechariah, even though he is a man of great obedience, is a man who struggles with faith here. Sometimes we think that uh, obedient believers never struggle with faith. The reality is I have found in my own life and in dealing with a congregation of many generations that, that every point in life has a different struggle of faith. We have to relearn faith throughout our lives. When you have children, you relearn faith. When they become teenagers and drive, you relearn faith. Uh, when your career changes, when you marry, when you retire, when you have health issues, life has a way of continually instructing us anew on how to trust God. And though Zechariah is a man of great obedience who deeply loves God, who deeply longs for what God longs, yet he struggles to believe that God would bring this miracle because he says, I'm advanced of years and, and, and my wife Elizabeth's really old. Notice he said that without her being present. And the angel says, you're not going to talk anymore. The angel literally mutes him as a sign of what God will yet do. Notice, though, what it says about the son, beginning in verse 15. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Pretty remarkable. And many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the Spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of a righteous. This chapter is very dependent on the Old Testament prophet Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament as we have it. It's very much concerned for the future. In fact, the last two verses of Malachi refer to Elijah returning, and he quotes it here. Elijah's ministry will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and Malachi goes on to say, and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Scholars debate what that means. Fascinating. Sometimes scholars take what's obvious and make it complicated. Some say, well, it, it means returning to the traditions of the ways. Or, you know what I think it means? It restores 
True faith restores family relationships. That's what it means. My sainted mother, who lived to be 96, was many of the people at Grace got to know her. Uh, she had East Texas wisdom. One of the things I've heard her say a thousand times is, if your Christianity doesn't affect your family, then it's not very real. The fact of the matter is, I think what he's saying is, John, the son, will come, and he will have such a great impact among the people of Israel that they will be restored in their love of God and in their relationships with each other. Because true faith does that. I just saw the clock. Let's keep moving. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. Wouldn't have said that. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you the good news. So that he was struck dead, and when he went out, the people asked what had happened, and he couldn't tell them. Let's skip down to verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. Most High is one of the titles of God used in the Old Testament. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relatives, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to, you as, to me as you have said wonderful structure of this passage because it goes back and forth between the story of John and the story of Jesus. Uh, the, Luke wants us to make sure that, he, that we understand that their lives were intentionally intertwined by God. So he shifts the focus now to Mary. Uh, uh, girls in the ancient Near East would be betrothed as early as 13. Most certainly, uh, Mary was a teenage girl at the point of this happening. Betrothal was much more significant than our engagement. In order to break a betrothal, you would have to go through a formal divorce. Although you didn't live together, you were legally married in the sense that we understand it. In fact, much more significantly than we do today. So she is a young woman with the mind of a teenage girl. Now, I had two teenage girls in my house, and let me tell you, they circulate very fast. They have a very high RPM. They run fast. They run hot. The mind of a teenage girl is always turning in directions I personally don't understand, but they're turning. So when Gabriel says to her, oh, by the way, you're going to be pregnant, she had already considered what that implied about her life, of a betrothed young woman who was going to be pregnant. She knew what that implied. She says, but I'm a virgin. And Gabriel says to her, the Holy Spirit is going to do this. Now hear me, 
Nowhere in Scripture does it imply there is a sexual relationship between God and Mary. Some scholars have tried to say the, the virgin birth of Christianity is just like a lot of the other ancient religions where gods had children by human women. But those were sexual. This is supernatural. It is never implied in any way in that sense. What it is implied and what is specifically said is that this was a supernatural birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this young teenage, relatively nameless woman says what? I'm the Lord's servant. Whatever you want. And there's a very clearly a contrast with Zechariah, a religious leader, a man of great significance who said, I don't believe it. Okay, you can't talk anymore. Instead, Mary as I mentioned, the women come out much better in this chapter. Mary reflects a true humility and obedience and simply says, whatever the Lord wants. Whatever the Lord wants. Now, I want you to read the rest of the chapter this week. I've, I've outlined it in the study notes so that you can. And you'll see how Zechariah's song and Mary's song reflect the theological issues that have been brought up in Zechariah and Mary's response. Uh, God's care for the poor, the insignificant, the weak, like Mary, comes through her prayer. God's care for the nation of Israel and for righteousness in the, in the kingdom and, and for God's pro fulfillment of the covenant promises to Israel is reflected in Zechariah's prayer. In other words, in these two people, you see the great themes of justice and righteousness coming together because Jesus will fulfill them both. But Luke wants you to walk away with this chapter with two things, at least. First of all, this is the true story of a supernatural birth. Most people that become famous become famous because of something they did or some opportunity they had, something that happens as a result of their lives. Luke is saying this person is famous before he's born. Because God himself has his fingerprints all over this. In fact, he is literally the son of God. The son of the most high. The son of God himself. And as such, the Jewish reader would read this and think of Isaiah and Malachi and all of the other Old Testament prophecies and say, this is the one who's going to fulfill all the promises that we've been looking to, the restoration of peace, the restoration of, of health, the restoration of a society that is good, all that we long for, Luke wants us to know is going to be fulfilled in this one. It's true. As one recent writer said, it's true truth. But don't miss the examples. How do you respond to God's truth? Who's the best example in the story? Mary. And, and on one level, with, with the perspective of history, we can say, well, of course she would embrace that. She's, she's Mary. She's like in all the Christmas pageants all over the world, you know. Everybody likes Mary, Right? But she's, she has been given information that's going to make her ostracized, 
an outcast, shamed? Make a list. For simply being obedient to God. And, and what, what is the example of her response? I'm the Lord's servant. See, we are in a, a society where we think we will decide whether we like the truth or not. And then once we've decided, we'll determine how we're going to respond. Um, Mary embraces the truth. Because the truth comes from the God whom she trusts and loves. And therefore, she will respond to him in obedience. This Christmas, you'll hear a lot of descriptions about who Jesus really is. Trust me. On TV, they'll, they'll do miraculous miracles with what they do with the story of Christ. And... and all of us have personal memories of family and other circumstances, whether good or bad, that are related to our Christmas memories. But Luke would have us hear this. This is description of one supernaturally born whose purpose is according to the eternal plan of God to make right what is broken in the world. And the question that is incumbent upon you and me is how shall we respond? How do we respond to the truth? And Mary is our example. I am your servant. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that sometimes the truth is hard. But most of us are here today because we believe that your son, Jesus, is the son of God that he died on the cross for the sins of the world and was resurrected so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. We are here because we believe that truth. But Father, we confess that sometimes our faith is weak and we struggle with obedience and faith when the truth is hard. Give us the courage to respond in humility. Give us ears that hear the truth truth about who Jesus is. In his name we pray. Amen.